listening is such a skill that you know for any business i think today and for the businesses that i'm talking about the people you have on the front line or it, whether it's you or, or the people you hire they need to be able to listen as much as possible in order to to bring that back to the business as much as you know as you might do through i don't know net referral scores or any other kind of surveys in a kind of marketing way so it's very important Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse, and today I'm talking with and learning from Steve Schreier. Steve is a accidental salesperson, did computer science, and in his first role, realized the salespeople were traveling the world and having a lot of fun. So he ended up in sales. He's been a salesman. He's run sales. He's consulted on selling. Deal-making, I suppose, is is where he sees selling. So not transactional sales, but more consultative selling and doing deals and negotiating. And particularly as the world moves more towards recurring revenue to not one-off deals, but to annual recurring or monthly recurring revenue, long life cycles with customers. And so he was frustrated that when he had to set up sales organizations or as he consulted with people, he didn't have a playbook. And I suppose he could have built a business and trained people, but he decided instead to write a book, Build Your Sales Tribe. And it's a step-by-step guide to the non-sales manager. It's not a book for salespeople. It's a book for sales managers or CEOs or commercial directors, chief revenue officers, where you need to know everything you don't know about building and managing a sales organization. Steve's put it together. So in today's conversation, we talk a little bit about where he comes from and we talk about some of the things he's found that he really felt he had to capture and and put in his great book. So without any further ado, Steve Schreier. Well, I have a slightly different background than most. I, I basically came out of college and I studied computers and I wasn't you know, going towards engineering and I did what's called a gap year now where I was fixing stuff and desolving stuff and all the rest of it, doing the kind of, you know, in-house stuff. But I saw salespeople going out of the office and traveling the world and having a good time and basically meeting customers and stuff. And so I didn't even know that was an option. And so I went, I went towards that um, and became a salesperson. I didn't even, no one had ever told me about that. And then we, um, the company I was working for, um, got itself involved with, in a company out of Mountain View in, in the Bay Area of San Francisco. And we were kind of the Europe, Africa, Middle East reps we did all of 35 countries from from here but it was a an amazing company that was in the broadcast business in the video broadcast business 
and it was kind of scaling down technology and in special effects. And they had a revolutionary product that I became the, the owner of, if you like, for EMEA. And so I ran a distribution channel across 35 countries uh, and just went around visiting them every week when I was 21 years old. And it was just one of the most fantastic things <laughs> I've been able to do. <laughs> but these were physical products. And, you know, basically we were shipping those and we had distribution and distributors and dealers and all the rest of it. And so, and then the internet came along. I thought that work was just about being successful and making lots of money. But um, I moved then into the internet business in the early 2000s and yeah, had a series of failures and lost a lot of money, <laughs> lost all my money really. But then I got myself involved in a kind of licensing business. And I think that's the way the world's going a lot more now. First of all, I was embedding you know, technology on devices, et cetera, and like mobile phones and cameras and this sort of stuff and selling that to the biggest manufacturers in the world. Uh-huh. So we were fairly successful at that for another Bay Area co- uh, company. But then I went back into the internet world and realized and lost all my money again, really. <laughs> but then I realized that actually it was a very different sales, but I knew I could sell. So I went back and got a job um, as a salesperson for a company and then rapidly uh, um, came on the management team of that company. Uh, but I couldn't find anything to read on sales and sales at that point seemed very, very different. Um, and we built that company and then we sold it to a FTSE 250 company about 10 years ago now. Um, and then I went on to head their global function. So they were a 3 billion market cap, FTSE 250, 700 million in revenues and 300 million EBITDA. And so then I sort of, you know, elevated to sort of sea level within a big organization and ran a team of like 40 people uh, globally. And then the same in a couple of other jobs that I did after that. But all around deal making, but the and so I've got a bit of a sort of background in in all of those kind of you know how it's changed and how it's moved and multiculturally etc. And now I run my own company in deal making and I help others scale in that. But um, so that's that's really my my background. And so with with the book, what's the what's the aim? If we talk about the sort of macro picture, I, I guess um, so. Uh, the book came out this year, but I mean, it's been it's, it's been a few years in the working. So this is before COVID, but I think COVID has accelerated a lot of this stuff. But lots of people, especially in the tech world, are, are looking for recurring revenue streams in their business models. In fact, IDC say that 53% of all software revenue come from subscriptions by next year. And so the buying model is shifting from one-off purchasing to repeat long-term relationship business. And a lot of that's to do with licensing of IP, especially UK companies, for example, technology and that's a very important model of selling and it's very different actually because it means understanding a lot more about your customers because often you have to be part of the success of the customers um, and your success is based on their success and then there's a whole upheaval in regulation and regulators etc in big businesses etc and they're challenging all aspects of our society now and so lots of especially in tech again lots of re- regulations being cha- challenged but also in climate and various other places and large institutions are becoming very outdated in a lot of the sectors of the, of the market. So that means people are having to reinvent themselves. And basically, there are challenger companies coming along or big companies having to reinvent themselves through innovation or through acquisition of R&D. Um, and you see kind of, you know, a lot of more investment, especially in the UK. There was an article this weekend on the FT about the number of u- unicorns in the UK of, is has you know it's doubled in the last decade uh which is startups worth of more than a billion dollars and the capital invested in british tech has jumped from a billion to 13 billion a year over the same period so and a lot of these companies are intellectual property or methodologies which are licensed to other people but also um you know other companies for their products and services 
And so, you know, we have a bunch of companies like that and I work with a lot of those sorts of people. I think there's been a real shift in that. So to answer your question really is fundamentally there's a there's a there's different kinds of businesses at the top level, I think. Uh, but you still need to have the same things. You still need to, you know, if you're going to scale your business, you need to sell more products and services or you need to get more pe people to buy more often or you need to charge more money for what you sell. That's only really the three main ways of getting money into your business. And that's about execution and deal making. And deal making is sales. So people, again, uh, seem to have sort of lost the knowledge. People call sales, sales, all sorts of different things. But ultimately, it's all about deal making for me. And I see a lot of leaps of faith that you see in, you know, where people are just assume people are about to acquire customers. And in my work, I've seen a lot of companies who've raised lots of money for products and services, et cetera, for, that they're going to build, but they don't seem to have any real understanding of how they're going to sell it, right? Yes. And I think you need invest, you need finance, you need products and services, you know, in, in terms of good. You also need a commercial, you need those three disciplines, really. I think all good investors look for those three things or at least they can provide the investment to, to make a business that's then, you know, able to go out in the world. So I think where we get to, and then hopefully this answers your question a long way around that, is we get to two types of businesses, really, broadly. So there's simple sales, which I would say commodity-based or simple transactions. And these are becoming frictionless and powered by technology in general across the board. And these, most people are adopting digital marketing techniques to automate that. So a lot of big B2C companies are in that category or moving towards it. And the human elements of that are very much, you know, they're the kind of bits like VIP managers or customer service people or, you know, but their core business is, you know, through that sort of funnel and, and that's how they run it. And you can buy a car and a house and, every, you know, most things nowadays you can buy through that. Um, and salespeople in that context are, well, a lot, in a lot of cases are being replaced by, you know, by different, they're order takers really. So they're, so they're not really human at all, or at least increasingly they're not human at all. And buyers are empowered by all the information that's out there and all of the comparisons, et cetera, like never before. So when they walk into a place or they pick up the phone or they go through the internet, whatever, they're, they're empowered. And here we talk in a very different language of active users, of churn, acquisition, retention, reactivation, CPA, split variant testing, it's, it's what I would call digital marketing speak. And most, a lot of my customers that I've grown up with and the businesses I work with, their customers have those people who work in that way. But then there's a whole nother business, I would say, which is what I would call complex sales. And these are companies operating, operating complex markets and they're changing at a really fast pace. They have sophisticated model uh, products and services, et cetera. And with them, they, they need salespeople and that means more than one sales call, longer sales cycles, different business models, which is based around success or licensing, et cetera. And this typically describes a lot of the business to business world that, that don't have commoditized products or services and, the, and those going beyond the startup phase, right? And this used to be something that people called enterprise sales or consultative selling, all these sorts of, of phrases. But now it's much, much more common to need to scale a business that way. And a lot of services businesses are based around that. So, for example, you know, I've got a friend who runs a tree surgeon business and it's, it's uncanny how many RFPs he has to go through and how much value he has to demonstrate, et cetera, to keep that business running and recurring revenues. So it's very common to have this now for a whole group of people. And I think the book is really aimed at those people who really want to take that and make that the mainstay of their businesses. There's also a strategic alliances. Lots of companies have strategic alliances to build their products. You know, it's lots of technology companies like Apple with the iPhone. They don't actually build a lot of components that go into the iPhone. That's all supplied by other businesses. And so those 
even those kind of simple sales businesses might have this very strategic area where you need to be able to make deals. And again, this is about intellectual property, et cetera. Anyway, so I wrote the book to help people in that area and really make that a, you know, a, a separate area. Because I think certainly that, that knowledge from what I was seeing um, isn't getting lost. But I wrote the book as the boring stuff. And, you know, the Lean Startup talks about it. The boring day-to-day -day stuff about how you hire people, how you run them. It's a book for management. It's not a book for the salespeople. It's not about sales methodologies. So I hope that answers your question, Tom. Yeah, no, it does. It does. Thank you. One of our clients is at the moment is looking to exit and you know they've found themselves in a position where as they go through appointing an advisor the advisors are telling them because they're a SaaS business effectively you know they they could be they could get 10 times 10 times annual recurring revenue rather than 10 times EBITDA so you know their business now appears to be two or three times more valuable than they thought it was a few weeks ago and and so yeah which goes to your point about you know recurring revenue being the thing yeah, a lot of the big businesses you see are based on that. I mean, again, there was a list in the FT this weekend, again, about the entrepreneur, top 100 entrepreneurs in the UK. A lot of those are kind of older businesses. But if you look at the new businesses, except for the sort of Gymshark, Stella guys, you know, which are real, real unicorns, it's a lot about intellectual property and licensing that out, et cetera. And that is about recurring revenue streams, right? Understanding how to do that. But it also means customer relations are really important as well. Customer success is really important for most companies today. And it used to be that sort of thing, you you had an account management team maybe, or you you know you had even a customer service team. That is, that recurring revenue is very, very important now. So having the discipline of being able to sell in new business and then transfer that into something, or, uh, or I advocate transferring that to something where you can then really manage that and really work on the customer success is very, very important. For and that's different to selling. So those people aren't salespeople, those people who are in customer success? I think there's a different kind of skill set, as what, and I make that claim in the book. I don't know whether everybody agrees with me. Actually, it's, it's you know there's a lot of nuance, isn't there? Because businesses are very different, and that's why you need you know you need to to find these things as you as you talk to people and as you work it out. But I do think there is a slightly different type of person who who is that person and who can represent people uh, the the customer within a business than the people who go and really you know perform the outbound. Because I think. In my world, if you do a lot of the outbound, the inbound kind of takes care of itself. So a lot of the actual selling is about getting out there. That might be through a digital medium now and really asking the right questions and listening to those answers to create the opportunity. But that's a very different skill, I think, to actually maximizing the opportunity for a company. And I think that's a different team or different people. Yeah, I think we went through, I suppose, my awakening to that happened when I was at Rackspace. We had what we called an account management team that looked after existing customers and did customer service and account management and selling. But, you know, on the last day of the month, some of them would be trying to solve a customer service problem and some of them would be trying to sell something. And actually, we were able to draw a line down through the middle of the team and say, you know what, you just do customer services. We'll pay you a salary. There's no need to sell anything anymore. And you salespeople will will compensate you differently and and you can have sales and a target and and it, it it was what we found was that it was that it was that sort of specialization and and continuing to specialize meant that we weren't trying to hire unicorns we weren't trying to find this person that got you know serotonin hit from customer service and also could sell things um but i think i think your observation about sales or deal making 
I did some solution sales or consultative sales training for a corporate finance client. And these guys are all accountants who've all worked in, you know, big four accountancy firms. And I turned up and I said, on the first session, I said, so uh, tell me what you think about sales. And they were like sleazy, slimy, manipulative. It's like, okay. And what about your company? Oh no, we, we take entrepreneurs and we help them maximize their life's value. Okay. And I know you better than your competitors. Yes. Oh, we, we feel, you know, and you could sense, even though their boss wasn't in the room, there was a, they really did believe that if somebody brought their business to them to sell it, they would get the best deal possible. And I said, well, surely then you'd want to be better at influencing people to buy your service. And they're like, oh yeah, no, we'd love to be better at that. <laughs> it's like, and it's like, okay, well, whatever you call it, let's get on and work out how we help you get better at influencing people. I don't care what you call it. Yeah, I'm calling it build your sales try, but I, I don't really care what anybody calls it. And I do say that in there either, but it is deal making. And unfortunately it isn't Wolf of Wall Street. If it was Wolf of Wall Street, we'd be all having a lot more fun, maybe. I don't know, but it's not that, is it? <laughs> That's the reality of it. But also, I think when you say, look, you know, we do a lot of outbound. If we do enough outbound, the inbound takes care of itself. You know, particularly in B2B, in a, in a niche, you know, where you're doing, you know, you were talking there about selling IP and embedding IP in mobile phones. You know, you probably have a number of less than 100 people in the world who give a shit or, or even need to know who you are, but they do need to know who you are. And and you're probably going to have to ring them up because they're not going looking. They don't know you exist, so they're not going to try and find you unless you beat a path to their door, which is great because then it's a human scale problem to solve. Yeah, well, I, but I talk about abundance in the book. I think it's very important for sales team to believe in, in abundance and, you know, lots of apples on the tree, et cetera. So even in those nuanced areas, I mean, the more complex it gets, the less, you know, targets you're going to have. But I think also as a, as a methodology, it's a... It's a very, you know, exploitation of customers is such an old fashioned, you know, uh, viewpoint on the world and how, like you say, with this whole sleazy sales stuff, this whole Glenn, Gary, Glenn Ross, you know, cherish the leads, you know, coffees for closers, this sort of stuff, which is, you know, how, we, how sales is positioned. And the problem with it is, is no one actually teaches sales, even in business schools, right? You don't really ever see people teach deal making. They teach you how to read a balance sheet or to how to look at a business and how many times EBITDA you might pay for one. They don't teach you, you know, that sort of those, those, and it's not really a soft skill either, I would say, but it is, it's meritocratic in that it's, you can't, to quantify it is about a, a, an end number really. So it's quite easy to measure at the very end of it, but the, all the bits in between are quite difficult and the people who are good at it and the people who are not good at it can be very different people to people who might be a good engineer or whatever. But I do think the problem here is also with management. In my experience, again, also what happens, and I've seen this many, many times, is people go, right, we need to sell something. So let's get that person over there and they can go out and sell stuff. One of the things that I picked up from the book is your your sense of not pitching and, and listening more. And so what you've described there is I see that I see that all the time. A client is making widgets. And they say, what we need to do to be successful is to sell our widgets. So we're going to go and find some people who want to buy our widgets rather than saying, which customer's problem are we going to be number one in the world solving? And then let's work out, you know, so they've, they've built a thing without probably much customer input. And then they can't find anyone to buy it. So they blame sales. And in fact, it's just, they've got it completely the wrong way around. So I think salespeople in, in businesses today, those complex, more complex businesses, the non-commodity businesses, they are the differentiator for me. 
but they're only the differentiator if you're listening to what they say, they're listening to the customers, but they're presenting your business, not you as a salesperson, your business as experts. You, it's complex and most of these markets are complex. You need to present yourself as a navigator, as a company, as a navigator, as experts in your field, as to, to customers, potential customers, so that they can go on that journey with you. And they'll risk changing because a lot of it is about, you know, is I'm doing this today with these suppliers and uh, if I change, that's risky for me personally within my organization and for my team. Most people don't buy individually anymore, they buy as teams. So you need to, when you're trying to pitch to them, and I think there's too much pitching, people just pitch all the time. Whereas if you go in and ask a bunch of questions and you listen to what people say back to you, and that's the beginning of the conversation, first of all, you're more likely to be able to qualify the opportunity quicker and see whether there is a, there is a basis of doing business together. And secondly, you're probably more likely to learn about the people you're working with and whether you can solve the problem and, you know, and there's a fit, et cetera. And if it isn't a fit today, it might be a fit in the future, which is, so this is what's building a, it's building a pipeline and, you know, all this stuff. So, so that's the language I like to speak about it from. Absolutely. Well, it, and the uh, corporate finance guys that I did some work for when I started there, they had a hundred and I think it was a 122 page deck. And one of their, de- one of their pages was that they had an office in Stockholm and they had, I think, 30 staff there or something. And I said, have you ever sold any UK company via that office? No. Okay. But you know, so it's, it's here are the things that we think are interesting from, for our, from our perspective, not, and, and your, and our process is to sit here and tell you how, how, how smart we are rather than to find out what we can do to help you. Yeah, exactly. And there's just, people just think that what we have to do is create a pitch deck and then turn up and just throw up on people. Yeah. That's true, exactly. And you see it all the time. And actually, the part of the reason I've been successful in my career, I think, is purely by by just treating people as human. I, I call it that in the book, treat people as human. Because we would just, you know, build, we built businesses out of basically, you know, if you're a trade show or something, and someone's coming on your, into your meeting room or something, you're not just bombarding them with something, you're actually treating them as, you know, as a, as a human being. And I think it's very, it's a very interesting, you know, skill. And listening to people is something that people don't, do in life much anymore lots of people you know so i think there's a there's a real there's a real change to that but you need to listen as a company and we when we built our business that we sold basically the information we collected out we used to have a wiki no, nothing complicated no big crm system but we used to go out and we had i don't know we had maybe three football tickets i think and we used to take our customers you know to football matches and stuff like that. and we used to learn unbelievable amounts and no one really knew in the businesses we were building at that point, you know, knowledge. We didn't have the knowledge. So we were collecting it and very hungry for it. And that noise, then we, that went everywhere in our organization to our product development, to our, you know, the way we did business with people. And so listening is such a skill that, you know, for any business, I think, today. And for the businesses that I'm talking about, the people you have on the front line, or it, whether it's you or, or the people you hire, they need to be able to listen as much as possible in order to, to bring that back to the business as much as, you know, as you might do through, I don't know, net referral scores or any other kind of surveys in a kind of marketing way. So it's very important. And so what did you do? You, you were capturing that information, putting in a wiki. It was just accessible by everybody. Sales could fill it in. Not everybody. You've got to also understand that there's a lot of confidential information in there. So we would separate that information a lot of the time and it would be available to the management team or, or various people. And I think I talk about that again in the book about confidentiality because you do le- end up learning a lot about people and their businesses, et cetera. So, yeah, we would share that where relevant and it meant we could just drive things 
when we iterate our products or whatever in the in in you know whenever those that was relevant. But yeah, that wouldn't be widely shared. And I think you know information needs to be treated like that in general. And I think that market insight piece. If I was to think of, uh, I don't know, there's only two or three things that you know I guess clients fix. And one of those is market insight. And it, it's absolutely staggering. You know, we've got an executive team and some of the people on that executive team have never, ever spoken to a customer ever. Right, exactly. And then we get in a room and we're discussing strategy and how can they possibly make a contribution to the company's strategy. So either they're the wrong people or they're not talking to customers or they shouldn't be in the room when we do strategy. Yeah. But it's just fascinating. Or oh, and they're talking to your competition. So you can go if you buy somebody lunch who's your competitor, and they tell you four things that five things about what they're doing, which they will do. But the, the equivalent is now happening on LinkedIn. People people go on LinkedIn, they tell you who they're talking to. They just buy the you know there's various social media tools that are telling you all yes. the information about what your competition is doing. That is also part of them that whole mix. So you need to mix it all together. But the customer the customer input it's very important. Although I do also subscribe to the view that. A lot of the time, customers don't really know what they want, you know, from a product perspective, and you and, and you need to be experts in that area. It's all part of the mix, but that knowledge is power. And some of the biggest companies we used to supply, I mean, one of the companies we used to supply in, in that particular business, they, you know, he wouldn't even let, once he realized that we might be competing with them in certain ways, we, he wouldn't even let us in the building. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> so, so knowledge is power in that area, yeah. You mentioned Lean Startup. I had Steve Blank on the podcast a while ago and, and he's he's co-created a originally at stanford but it's a university program that connects commercial world with the military and the military know they have a problem but they don't know that somebody's already solved it right because they see they see their entire world as sort of battlefield and so i think it's now 40 odd universities around the world run these courses called hacking defense and and it's just to turn that around you know so the customer might not know that that your solution exists or that what they don't want is a faster horse or a longer toasting fork, but they definitely know that they have a problem. And if you don't listen, you can't help turn, turn the conversation around. And one of the things I think is that quite often, the reason that people have this sort of secondhand car dealer, it's there's, there's pushy, there's, there's also talking at you, not listening and pitching. Nobody wants to be sold to, but I think people want help in purchasing. Do you have some guidelines on the type of people that you should be hiring in this sort of commercial consultative sales role? So I think there's three top level of category of, pe- of people. One is the what I would call the new business salesperson, and people call that a hunter and various other things. But I think they are particular kinds of people. And in that, I'd generally look for people who, you know, first of all, they can handle rejection in terms of the the ability to listen, they can they can take data and regurgitate it, but they have certain interests. So they're interested in money a lot of the time. They're interested in being successful. There's various traits that drive them in in order for them for them to to succeed. For then I think that on top of that, there's a more sort of what I would call business development. Now I call business development I separate people who call business development a lot now who sell in my in in, in my world at least because they don't want to be called salespeople, I guess. But for me, they're slightly different types of people. And those are the people who are looking for strategic relationships for your company. And in the book, I tell a story about like Lego aligning themselves with the you know different Star Wars and those different brands. And you know someone needs to do those deals and they're longer term deals and they, they generally take a, a little bit longer. And they're similar to salespeople, but they, 
will have a bigger network and they'll be motivated by different things, more more the success instead of short-term success, more the longer-term success of the company potentially. I think that there's also the kind of account management, customer success people, and those people are much more motivated by the success of the, of the customer and, and the, the longer-term success in that area and problem solving. And, you know, there's, there's various types of people who can make really good people in that area. Now, in, in smaller businesses, you find that pe- one person might be doing all those things, but I do think even if they're doing all those things, you need to kind of separate and you kind of slightly measure them slightly differently. Um, and wherever you can, certainly the new business person, people, I was trying to always have a focus on that because it's really difficult getting out there. And it actually, in this kind of disrupted world, you are you are dealing with some crazy situations a lot of the time for these businesses that are trying to grow. And so having extreme focus on that is really important. But also you find because of that, a lot of those people will get distracted very easily and they'll end up you'll end up seeing them in your room in the product development meeting and you're like hold on what, what, what are you doing in that room in that room i need you out there selling and i know that there are people who have strong views on how that should work and i think that's very it's right to be concerned that people will, will, will not be selling when they should be and so that means you know treating them in a, in a certain way i mean i've seen clients or people i've done some work with where the people that are ostensibly doing their new business and and this is a company where the challenge is we're not growing fast enough and then you say and then we work out how much time the people who hold the baton for new business sales are spending doing new business sales and it's it can be as low as 10 percent. it's not surprising to see it at 25 or 30 percent and it's like there you go then you know this is a hard job unless you have somebody who's good at it, whether it's consciously or subconsciously being distracted means they get to not have to do the hard thing. Yeah, I totally agree with you, but I would say it's the responsibility of management to create the environment for those people to succeed. And that's what I don't see a lot of. I mean, in some cases, some people are brilliant at it in, in terms organizationally, but I think it's the, the job of management to create that environment. What I find interesting is that, you, you said sales isn't taught. And you know if sales itself isn't taught, then sales management isn't taught as a thing. And so people have no idea what that sales organized. I mean, that's where your book is really helpful because it's like, here's a playbook. If you're a manager running a business and you don't know this stuff, here's a great way to look at the whole commercial side of your business end to end and get some guidance on how to set it up. But even when, I, even when I've hired and I must have interviewed hundreds and hundreds of sales directors, Look, if you and I went to work for somewhere like Dell, you know, as a salesperson, we'd succeed because they they have a process and we can tie our shoelaces and breathe and chew gum at the same time. And so, you know, they'll put us on the treadmill and we'll be we'll at least be average. And but when I've hired sales directors from organizations like that in the past, they have completely failed. And I and I realized that success is contextual. And so what they didn't have is is particularly in a startup. Uh, or a business which is now needing to go past, you know, the CEO or the first salesperson or what have you, then, you know, you interview a sales director and you say, look, we need a, I don't know, a million pounds of GP generated next year. What would you do? And only one in 10 say, oh, well, I know what I'd do. The other nine look at you like you're completely mad. They've got no idea. And so even for those nine in 10, your book would be really helpful. So when they land their next job, they'd know what they were doing because at the minute they're clueless. Well, thank you. Well, I think the other problem is that you don't, so a lot of people think, okay, so we'll buy a CRM system, customer relationship management system. 
and that and they have these pre-baked sales processes in what i realized very early on especially with the, the internet business is that's completely ours is completely different to other people's what we want to do is totally it's, it's not totally different at a very sort of macro level but the nuance of it is what we what we really deliver to our customers and our prospective customers and how long we wait and also there are some key things so so having this sort of pre-baked ideas i think is, is very dangerous so you've got to develop it for yourselves and understand what your sales process is and that is a lot about asking the questions listening de-risking that doing the business with you all these these are things that need to be done in today's environment for me but it's also about just demonstrating expertise like we, as we talked about and having this sort of headline value that you can bring in and not just picturing actually delivering value to the customer as part of that process so even if they don't go with you at the end they've still in, got something out of engaging with you as a firm and that means that down the line they, they might come back to you and then the other big thing i think is i mean and i struggle with this a lot with people that i work with um is being able to say no and being able to say actually this isn't right for us either and so i used to you know with prospective customers and when i was running the teams i'd say right get on the when you get on the phone or whatever face to face whatever just say this i have to go through this process to make this work for you and for us and if we don't do all of this stuff it's probably not going to work and so it, it's very difficult for people to get their head around they've generated a lead and it might not be that might not be the, the deal you want to do but actually that is the world today there's a lot of time when you actually you could save yourself quite a lot by saying no and then focusing on the people you really want to deliver this stuff to and then you'll be much more successful because you're actually delivering to the to the ideal customer and so i talk about the ideal customer in the book and defining that, and stuff like that. well and i suppose i'm going to use that as a segue into a discussion about commission because i because <laughs> i think where so often my personal angst with commission shows up is where you have an organization which has the pipeline isn't big enough. And so really the salespeople are incentivized to say yes, when really from the customer's perspective or from the company's perspective, we shouldn't have done that deal. And so we're paying people to do the wrong thing. Yeah. You disagree with me. You think you think commission's a good thing. Yeah, well, only be, so so I think commission's a good thing for, for many different reasons. But I think the first thing is, and I know, you know, you've had other guests on as well who disagree with commission. First of all, I think commissions shouldn't be something that drives people to sign deals you, sh you want to say no to. So that's about, again, about management and the process. And you can have the process that dovetails with all the stakeholders in the business in my world, and I've done it many times, which means people can say no at various things. It doesn't just have to be the salesperson. You know, the problem you get with these quotas is you get, you've got to double this, you've got to, every deal then suddenly matters, right? And so it's not just about commission, then they've got to say yes to it. But commission can be an excuse for doing deals that are bad, but I think it's management's responsibility to not do that. But commission in general, I think that doesn't work for some commodity type businesses right now. You know, and I know it's a trend. If people aren't really adding the value, then they shouldn't really be getting the commission. But for the types of businesses I'm talking about, I've seen it where people move hell or high water to, to do things in order to get their commission. And it's intrinsically linked with success there and then. It's success, you know, and that means much more than having a bonus program that happens at the end of the year if you hit certain numbers. I don't see that as totally meaningful. So I like to use commission as a tool to, first of all, basically design it correctly so that it's it's delivering you what you want, an incentive for delivering you what you want. And then I, if I was going to write another book, I'd probably write it about incentives because I think in the world today, these are all also being turned on their heads. And commission is one of them. But 
there's no point having commission, first of all, if your salespeople don't like money, for starters. Um, and, you know, it's not really about greed, this. But I also think, and in my, again, in my world, you can use commission to self-select your staff performers. And so without commission, you get, the, just, I don't know, you don't like the 7 out of 10s. I don't like the 7 out of 10s either. I like the 10 out of 10s or the 8, 9 out of 10s. And those are the people who earn the most money in, in the commission programs that I run. And if you build them up on the basis of recurring revenue, they become what's called golden handcuffs in, in a sort of negative way. But they become an incentive for the, your best people to stay with you. Now, I know the view is that the relationships with customers are not held by personal, shouldn't be held by personal people. And generally, they're not. And I don't I agree with that completely. But that's because in the in the modern world, your business is doing business as a set of experts delivering value to a customer. And so obviously, if one salesperson leaves, they're not going to go with your competition necessarily, because it's actually about the nuance of your relationship. But I do think you want your best people to stay with you. And a way of getting them to stay with you is to have commission that's giving them you know, that lock-in that lock over time. And then the people who don't earn the commission, you don't want them, being in a very brutal way. So it's a way of having an immediate incentive for certain types of people who generally you, know, you want on your side and clever, motivated people. Now, you do see all sorts of other mechanisms in you know, corporate finance and various other worlds where there's bonuses paid at the end of certain periods, which are not commissioned. So you could give people a choice, but I think the people you want on your team, uh, you want to earn commission. Okay. But you have to design it properly, and that's your next book. No, no, but no, sorry. In, my, in the book I've written, is, there's a whole chapter on commission. Okay. And so, but I think you you definitely need to design it so that it becomes something that's providing you what you want, not providing you something you don't want. And I think the biggest problem I've seen in businesses I work with or, or been part of is that the commission program has been designed five or 10 years ago and is not fit for purpose anymore. Yes. Or, or one where the salespeople have no idea how much they're going to earn. Well, that's another problem. They become incredibly complicated. And then it becomes a point of friction between you and your staff where you don't ever really know how much you're going to earn. What you get paid isn't what you think you're going to get paid. It isn't easy to calculate. In in any businesses I'm involved with, I would want to pay. I want to pay it. I want it to be a budget line. I want it to be X amount of whatever I'm earning and I want to pay it. So uh, it has to be easy to calculate for you and them. It can't be too complicated. You know, and obviously there are very complicated situations out there, but it needs to me to be a good tool, a motiv motivating tool to be quite simple and people need to know they're going to get it. Fab, Steve, what is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? And it, it might be that you were going to lose all your money twice, I suppose. <laughs> no, no, I wish I'd known that. <laughs> Maybe something else. But that, that's the thing that teaches you the most stuff, right? I mean, that's, you know, you learn a lot more from that <laughs> than you do, out of the, you know, when you've got had nothing and, and also it teaches you the value of things. But I think the top thing from a management perspective is, is, is get the bullies out. The, there's no place for bullies for me on a team unless it's the founder or the CEO. That's probably the one thing I know now that I wish I'd known in the beginning um, because they're normally, you've got to play as a team, right? And if you play as a team, the wins come from places you don't expect. I think that's a very important thing in businesses today where there's so much, so many things being turned on their head. I think getting the bullies out is very important because they often know they're also, they're also cowards and you don't really want them in your team either. And so I think that's a key, a key thing for me. Would you agree with that? I think, I mean, you did say, <laughs> you did say except for the CEO or the founder. I know that you should work for bullies 
if they're the CEO or the founder either. But I think I, you know, you're right. I think the okay, if I look at work we do with clients uh, or my own experience, you know, the toxic personalities have often been in sales or because we're in the internet, they're often, you know, network engineers, people who had deep skills that we thought were difficult to get rid of. But when we get rid of people, the whole company does a happy dance. And, and, you know, that you've, you've had this angst about getting rid of somebody because they're, you know, they deliver on one, on one dimension and, and then you get rid of them and the whole team is freed up and you realize that you should have just moved so much quicker and this thing that you thought was going to be a negative is outweighed massively by a surprising uplift in positivity and um, output from the whole team. I always think higher for skills, not talent. The talent, there's always going to be a talent shortage if you look for talent. You, if you can create the processes to hire the right people who've got the skills, you, uh, you don't need to employ the, the people who think they're the most talented. It's interesting. You were talking earlier about hiring great people and also the risk that customers take when they buy from you because you're because you're the new upstart or entrant or something in the marketplace and scott galloway's got he's got this thing called the t algorithm which was you know what are the things that made the trillion dollar businesses trillion dollar businesses and one of the things he talks about is a career accelerant and that these businesses position themselves to be career accelerants so hiring for a potential rather than people necessarily absolutely today at the top of the game. But it's also true of customers that, you know, you, nobody got fired for hiring IBM, but you didn't get promoted either because it was the dull choice, right? And so, uh, you know, we've got a number of clients have adopted that sort of career accelerant thing as saying, oh, well, how do we attract people where th this business is going to be great for them? And then likewise, our customers buying from us is going to be you know, career defining for them. So it goes back to the customer success thing. Like these guys have by purchasing with us have put their neck on the line. So we better make better make good on our promise. Absolutely. It's completely, completely right. Build your sales tribe. Sales in the information age, available from all good book stockists. And and Amazon. Yes, it is. What, what not an audio yet, Tom. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> You made me read it. Um, what else along the way have you found found useful? Okay, so well, I know you've had things like the E Myth and and obviously the Lean Startup, etc. But so I'd say well, there's a bunch. I, I love reading a lot of these books. But anyway, I'd say Spin Selling, which is written in the '80s, which is about asking questions and listening, and half of which isn't really relevant today, is a good sales book. And Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. Uh, which is about negotiation. I think young salespeople these days need to negotiate um, because that's, you know, it's a very important skill. Um, the War of Art by uh -huh. Stephen Pressfield. So that book is about being creative. And I think creativity is not just about products and services. It's also about innovation in, in business models, et cetera. And that book made me quit my last job, my last C-level job and uh, finish my book and do what I'm doing now. There's a book called Measure What Matters, which is by John Durr, which is about the OKRs, which is what the methodology that built uh, Google and Intel and a bunch of other, lots of other people, Bono, et cetera. That is a, that's a must read. I think that's, that's modern business management thinking. If you're in, if you need to do the marketing stuff, Seth Godin, uh, this is marketing and anything he does by Akimbo, the alt MBA, for example, any of his training courses, which are completely out there in terms of how people learn, et cetera, I think is, uh, is really good for that. Then there's anything by Tim Ferriss, his business books, and also his podcast. 
Um, and then I guess two other things. The Puritan Gift is a book by Kenneth and William Hopper, and that's about how organizations need people to learn on the front line before they become managers. And that was written in the last crash, but I think it's a really good book. It's about, you know, how maybe business schools don't can't teach you everything about running businesses, uh, but it can teach you, teach you a lot of theory, but not the kind of, you know, hard stuff. Puritan gift, that is. That's right, yeah. And then the last one, I'd say, there's a paper that goes that people are given at the top business schools like Wharton, et cetera, uh, called Strategy Essentials by Sonia Marciano. Uh, and it's an internal, so it's her text. It's a kind of her internal strategy document. I think it's only available for her students. I, I have, I've got a copy from one of my customers, but if you can get hold of that or look at her YouTube or anything like that, it's, there's some brilliant stuff about strategy and corporate strategy. And she does a lot of, lot of stuff on pricing and willingness to pay and all this stuff, which I think is is really good as well. So um, yeah, that would be, those would be the ones I'd uh, put on the list. Thank you very much indeed, Steve. That's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Pleasure talking to you too, Tom. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.